Hey everybody, Mike Venezia here, your host of Music Cover to Covered. I wanted to give you a little brief introduction before we get into this particular podcast episode because episode five had to be broken up into two parts. And why? Well, my guests are cult stars from Mars, and we had so much ground to cover because of their inception as a band called Fuzzbubble, which we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Fuzzbubble's debut album with this episode, but also there was so much ground to cover between where they were before Fuzzbubble and now the inception of Cult Stars from Mars and everything else in between that it actually deserved two parts of an episode. So at the end of this episode, you're going to get a bonus, This Song Sucks, with myself and Mike Tobin, and you're also going to get to hear some music on these two episodes as well because we can this time around. Anyway, without further ado... I present you episode five, part one of music cover to covered featuring cult stars from Mars. This is all Sean God over here. <laughs> I can't hear. Yeah. Tell me about I, it. I can't, I can't hear myself in my, in my DAW. Well, you both have headphones on. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm just recording my voice. Yeah. Jay, I'm just recording. I'm, I'm listening to yeah, my, me too. My, just for the microphone, the speakers through. Yeah, here. So, and I'm not but hearing. That means you're going to record. That means you're going to record my voice when through your mic, Mark. I'm not hearing oh, bleed well. through Mark though. I'm not hearing you're that. Not, I, you know, I, so that's a good thing then. So yeah. it's fine. All right. <laughs> Welcome once again, everybody, to another fantastic episode of Music Cover to Covered. I am your host, Mike Venezia, as always. And who the fuck am I? Nobody really cares. I'm just a guy who loves music, always have, always will. And for the past whatever 20 some odd years, I've worked in and out of the music industry in one way or another. And I've made a bunch of friends, or at least they, I'd like to say that they're friends. They'll call me something else behind their backs. And uh, I'm going to have them on the show every now and again as we go through all these fun episodes. Today, not being any different. Uh, last episode, which was episode four, we talked about voting. Well, that's all done now, or at least we thought so. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll see how all that turns out. Uh, but the one thing that was left out of last episode was the discovered section. We're going to bring that back for this episode, as well as this song sucks. But I also didn't have a special guest last time because I was talking about voting and I just wanted my opinion out there. So uh, with that said, I do have a special guest this time around. These are... Three lovely young lads from originally uh, from the New York area, specifically Long Island, as they came out of there as a band. And they used to be known as a band called Fuzzbubble. And currently, their current incarnation is known as Cult Stars from Mars. Say hello, everybody. What's up? Hola. That was cool. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. You got it. You're right, you're right on it. <laughs> well, we have uh, we're, we're looking at, at each other on the. This is something new as well with the podcast. I'm able to look at whoever it is that I'm talking to uh, yeah, remotely. So this is good. So you know we can make fun of each other, and and you know it's it's uh, you got four idiots from Long Island here. Everybody's last name ends in a vowel. So <laughs> you yeah. know we can all cook, right? We can all cook. Yeah, <laughs> we're all music fans. Uh, we're all musicians, and whether or not these guys know we've all had interactions in one way or another together. We're going to talk about all this really weird, fun stuff. We're also going to talk about something called the Raven. We also need to know pizza and bagel references and, and, and recommendations for anybody going to long Island. Um, but the funny thing is, is that we're doing this from not in long Island. I believe Mark is the only one who's in long Island anymore. 
and I'll be able to chime in and help out with all, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah he has so, the more you know, current like, uptake on it. So. <laughs> I will say that, um, we all, all four people probably know that most other people in the world, or at least in California anyway, don't know. Um, pizza only needs three ingredients, the mutz, the sauce, and the dough. All this bullshit with the toppings. Everyone out here is like, what toppings does it come with? It's like, you don't need toppings if the pizza's good. Damn that's right. That's a problem with California. They put a fucking salad on the pizza. And <laughs> it's like, this pizza's great. It's like, how can I tell? There's so much shit on, so much shit on top of it. Take all the stuff off. Yeah. Three mutz sauce dough. So all four of us know that. So. Just gonna True. maybe add that maybe a there. little oregano, but yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, a little bit. possibly yeah. a little red flake, little red flake if you want a little extra, little hot pepper. But that's yeah, that's that's a condiment. That's not three a ingredients, three things. Condiments, I never use them. Hit your cue. Where's your cue, man? Wait, yeah, that, I think I got it. Oh wait, I lowered it. There we go. All right. <laughs> There we go. Really, See, now I'm off. It I'm really worse, lost. I'm it. worse than the it, average drummer. All right, it really just, lost its luster. <laughs> <laughs> See, oh now what, what? Hey, thanks got, for having us, man. This was a lot of fun. This was, guys. Thanks so much. It was so great having you here. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so long, guys. <laughs> so now that Mark's walked off camera. All right. Jim's already recording his 600th song of the day. And uh, <laughs> Jay is having something healthy and ready to go for a 100-mile run. Uh, so just to introduce everybody, we have Jim Baki on guitar, Mark DiCarlo, lord of all that is vocal and guitar, and Jay Camiolo, uh, Guy Friday, uh, jack of all trades, uh, does a little bit of everything in the band these days, it seems. So, And then... Let's start off with asking, you know, there was a fourth member of Fuzzbubble who is obviously not with us today. And why did no, you kill him? He's still alive. Why did you kill him? <laughs> he's still alive. <laughs> and that was that was Brett, right? Yeah, correct. And Brett, Brett Rothfeld. Opted, Brett Rothfeld. So, so Brett uh, was the bass player. He's also no longer in Long Island, from what I understand. Correct. Portland. He's, he's in, Portland. in Portland. Yep. So he is not part of this project by his own volition. Is that right? We talked about doing a reunion a while ago, and Brett seemed like it was too bu- he was too busy, and now he lives in Portland. So, um, we just kind of were motivated the three of us to do music, but we did and do ask him to play on stuff sometimes. Like he played on Dragonfly Part Two, mm-hmm. um, which was the first Cult Star song, and he's going to be playing on the next one we're in the middle of now. So he's 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 um not a full time member, but a part time. He's an official like, guest star. Yeah. <laughs> official guest star. Yeah. He has a recurring role. Yeah. Right. He has a recurring <laughs> role and he always and I, will. I would even go as far to say it's too, is he still is the bass player of Fuzzbubble, but this isn't Fuzzbubble. <laughs> True right. story. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So let's get down to it. So the three of you guys, Cult Stars from Mars, that was, uh, uh, if, if we want to look at it in a very meta fashion, it's now the name of your band, but it was a name of a song by Fuzzbubble, your second album, for lack of a better term? Well, the demos, outtakes, and rarities was an official release. It was on Not, Not Lame Records, and we did have it on there. Oh, okay. So, but it's got a history even before that that I, I think. Right. It was either, from, right. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I first met Jimmy, he was in a band called One Groovy Coconut. And um, 
I think you wrote that when I was in the band, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a one groovy coconut song, the, so that version of it. Yeah, it came from that band, one groovy coconut. When I met Jimmy and joined the band, and we started kind of doing more pop stuff and harmonies and vocals and stuff. That's when he wrote that. So that's yeah. that's where it comes from. Yeah. So it's an old it's an old ass song. Yeah, yeah. And you're using this as a uh, let's call it the base for everything. It seems like you're doing it doing now. You're you're called called stars from Mars. You have you guys have a podcast as you were mentioning called the podcast from Mars, right? Mm-hmm. So everything's yep. sort of based off that. And from what I understand, you're re-recording Cult Stars from Mars, the song. Yes. Yep. As Cult Stars from Mars, more meta. Uh, with all that said, now that's bringing us into the future. Well, into the current, let's say. But let's go Let's go back. So maybe uh, each of you can kind of do like the spinal tab thing as to how y'all sort of came together. I'm, I'm sure, you know, I understand, Jim, you started off, you know, with your band Hitman. Uh, which mm-hmm. uh, yep. and that's also a, a revisited project recently. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Mark, I remember you from when you were in Po' Boy Swing. You God know, help me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Jay, uh, you you know, before Fuzzbubble, I know that you'd played with several different bands. You were in a band that I was familiar with called the Plums from Long Island. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but Jay, let's start with you. Your your father and your grandfather were musicians, right? So was that, do you feel that that was your main influence of getting into it? Or was there something externally that really wanted to make you start playing? Oh yeah, no, totally. It originates with my father who played drums and uh, also growing up in the house. I lived with uh, my uncle lived in the house um, and both of them had crazy, amazing and still do have crazy record collections. So uh, I was exposed to a lot of music very early on. And yeah, that, that's the initial influence. My, my grandfather played drums, not professionally, but he was really into it. And then my father and then me. And so, yeah, it all started in the home, extensive record collections and drums. So it was predominantly drums from day one. You didn't start on like some people start on other instruments and then gravitate towards something else. No, I think I, in, in uh, elementary school, you know, I filled out the little, slip for music and they said pick 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 two choices i said well drums but you had to pick a second choice so i picked i picked a saxophone and uh they they came they said to me there's too many drummers so you got the alto sax so i brought it home to my parents and they said i said uh hey we got to rent me an alto saxophone that's what they gave me my father said like hell you're playing the drums Let me have with that teacher, please. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened, to be honest with you. But I played the drums since about third grade. Yeah. Never played the alto sax. So Fair enough. Now, now, Mark, you're a super talented singer. I love your voice. Uh, you you have this great talent of, you know, I mean, I've heard your original material, but I've heard you, you know, in, in cover bands and you have this innate ability to almost mimic any any vocalist out there. So when was it that you discovered that this was something that was in the cards for you? Well, well let me go back actually with, with like history and stuff. My, my uncle, my uncle Louie, Louie, <laughs> my uncle Louie. Yeah. Well, my family, you know, came from uh, a story Queens. He was a doo-wop singer. He was in the devotions and they had a couple songs on the radio and, um, and you know, my dad would go to shows with him and stuff like that. So, uh, I music was in the family. I was born on John Lennon's birthday. So you have to be a musician if you're fucking, you know, you're born on the <laughs> birthday. So, uh, you know, and my parents were just, I, you know, from their earliest 
my earliest memories and stuff. I grew up in a house. My parents had, you know, the man who fell to earth, the Bowie poster and the, like, you know, that my parents are rock and roll people. So I just came up in that environment. So, you know, my mom was just like, pick an instrument, play, do this. And I, so it was always around and everything. So, um, and then shoot to, uh, being able to with, you know, so I just, you know, it was always just like, you know, played guitar and did all that stuff. But with, as far as copying people's voices, I guess it was just, you know, doing stupid karaoke shit um, on Long Island and just, you know, I guess realizing I could kind of just mimic things. And I just, I just listen, you know, I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know how I could do it. And I've, I've kind of, um, I'm in a band called Ola Lamore right now. We're a big cover band on Long Island and, uh, and we just do covers and, I somehow have honed it and really good and people are happy with it and stuff. So I could just copy people's voices. I don't know. So, and with the fuzz bubble stuff, we're trying to find my own voice. Um, I guess like, cause I don't even know what my, my own voice is, but I guess if I had to try to pick to try to sound something, I'm like, let me try to do a combination of Paul McCartney and John Lennon and squash that together. You know, two of the greatest, what I think, you know, think, you know, so I try to do my McCartney voice and my Lennon voice and, you know, make that my own. So that's that's kind of try to how I sing with the fuzz bubble stuff, if that's what I call my my own voice. So yeah, you know, know definitely hearing you. Uh, for those people that that haven't listened to fuzz bubble, you can check them out on Apple Music, and you can check them out on YouTube and a bunch of other places, Spotify, everything else. Uh, the thing the thing that I get from your voice is that you have a talent that other vocalists try to have to have that gravelly kind of thing but also sing very clean and a lot of vocalists can't do both they could do one really well and the other one is sort of like they're phoning it in you do both equally well and a lot of times equally well within the same song seamlessly which is what draws me to your vocals because you're able to have that emotional build that that ebb and flow throughout one song to do that with with great ability yeah, I don't know how the hell I do it. I mean, I'm not even like when I first came. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm still not confident being to sing. Like, I always, I'm like, I was always happy. Like when I met Jimmy to do from Paul Boy Swing, and I went, I joined One Ruby Coconut with Jimmy. I was so happy, like playing guitar because I'm a guitar player. I have like, I'm, I'm such a, I'm a fucking guitar nut. So, and I, you know, I could, you know, sing and everything, but it was so happy singing when I joined them and just doing like all these harmonies with Jimmy and doing these pop songs and playing guitar. I just love being behind a guitar also. So, um, I, I don't know, you know, I'm whatever, just happy. <laughs> that's you know. a, that's a natural gift. You know, yeah, like, just, you I know. wish I could sing. I, I can't, I mean, I could do some backups and, you know, I could yell like, uh, like my singing is like, ends up me sounding like Bon Scott and I do it for 10 minutes and then I can't talk for the next two days. <laughs> you know, So that's the extent of my singing. So like, I wish I could, like you said, it's like that gravelly thing is just for me. Like when I try to do that, it's just, like I said, my voice is gone in 10 minutes. So I never understand yeah. how people can do that. It's amazing. Yeah, to exactly. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Yep. So. Years ago when I was in, in artist management, there was, there was one artist that I dealt with that did that to the best uh, uh, that I've ever seen. And that was, um, that was Chester Bennington from Lincoln park. So, I mean, I put you in that category to be able to, you know, do that gravelly, you know, thing. And then like right to the clean and just nail it 
without without there being a hiccup you know both of you guys equally had that innate ability so that's you know for me that's that's the pinnacle of somebody that that can stylistically can really stretch boundaries so uh but i guess that that helps when you're dealing with somebody like jim moving on to jim who is in like 27,000 bands at any given time, it seems, working on 27,000 projects and prolific songwriter, prolific guitar player, uh, you know, among many different styles. Like, for instance, and I'm just going to throw a couple of things out there, Jim, and I'll have you run with it, but, you know, Fuzzbubble, okay, you know, Cult Stars from Mars, all that, the, the power pop stuff, but then Hitman, which is metal, like in the vein of that 80s Judas Priest style, you know, yeah take out all the mids out of the guitars metal you know it's it's yeah. it's heavy metal as we knew it originally when it when it got big and then right. there's the tikiaki orchestra yeah it's 180 it's a 180 from everything i've ever done so so where yeah. was your where was your inspiration initially like how did you start doing that and and what brought all that to the fold to where you're you're developing proficiency not in just one thing you know you're not a one trick pony you're you do everything really well stylistically across the board. Well, I started out, you know, being that I was born in the 1930s. Um, <laughs> yes, so, indeed. You know, um, you know, I grew up, uh, I had an older brother and sister, so I grew up in the, I, I was born in the, you know, the early part of the 1960s. So I was around while the Beatles were still together. You know, my sister had all the 45. She's nine years older than me. I'm 57 right now. So I was born in 63, basically the year the Beatles kind of came over, right? 63, 64. Um, and, you know, my sister's nine years older than me. My brother's five and a half years older than me. So my, my sister, as a little kid, a five, six-year-old kid, my sister had, and I still have the polka dot 45 case, with all her 45s in it, you know, the monkeys, the Beatles, you know, wipe out. So I got all that early education, like as a young, young kid, because I used to sit with her record player and play her records. And then her monkeys albums, I listened to those albums. So, and then, you know, my parents, so they were into, my dad was, my dad saw Benny Goodman live, you know. Saw Gene Krupa with Benny Goodman. I mean, that, my dad's 93. He's still alive. They were into their music. You know, I mean, my mom, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, you know, you know, Tom Jones, or Engelbert Humperdinck, all that. Like, and So I kind of grew up with all of that 60s where lounge music kind of was going out and rock and roll kind of took over pop music. Like I was born right in that sweet spot. And then the Beatles and the monkeys kind of happened and changed music forever, basically popular music. So all of that music was kind of in the stew when I was around as a kid, it's all in my memory. So as I grew up and, you know, I think I grew up listening and discovering music in the absolute best time for rock music, which is the, you know, mid seventies. Um, I, I bought my, I bought, yeah, I bought my first you record. Right yeah. 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 My first records I bought were like, I mean, I, first record I ever bought was Chicago too when I was like seven years old, and I played sax. I played saxophone in the nice. school band, and I sucked at it. Uh, I was really into Chicago at a very young age. My brother was into Chicago, so you know, twenty five or six to four. And does anybody really know what time it is? All of those great, you know, all of that stuff was on the radio. So when I was like twelve years old. I said, I want to play an instrument. My, they used to have a folk mass. My sister was at part of folk mass at church. And it was like the young kids singing, you know, Catholic 
songs, but they would do rock things. And there was a guy there who had a wah-wah, Tom Shizano, his name was. He had a wah-wah on a guitar, and they played this one song called Freedom. I don't know who wrote it, but he did a wah-wah guitar solo, and I was just like, oh. I used to go to church twice to see him do that because I went to the church, and then I go, oh, I got to go to Folk Mess so I could see him play that solo with the wah-wah pedal. And I used to, you know, my parent, my mom had a sewing machine with a little pedal on it, and I used to have, like, old acoustic guitar and pretend I was playing the wah-wah pedal. This is, like, when I'm 10, you know what I mean? So... <laughs> And then I finally got a guitar on my own. Well, I got a bass first because I didn't think I would be able to play guitar because my index finger doesn't bend. On my left hand, I had an accident with a piece of glass and it severed the tendon that makes your first index finger move. They took the two ends and go, "Mm," they tied a knot in it and they're like, I don't know what you're going to be able to do with that, but you could bend the first knuckle and that's it. I could, it, it bends. It doesn't just stay straight, but I can't. You don't have free will it. to do it yourself. Yeah. Like, right. It's similar to like the Tony Iommi thing where he yeah. put his finger and it, 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 mm-hmm. it makes me play different. And maybe it makes me play game. different. Yeah. yeah. So, so I played bass. Yeah. I started out playing bass. My brother bought a bass. I was learning to bass. I was getting into rock and roll. You know, my best friend who lived down the street from me, Marty Rosenberg, I always tell, I thanked him on my first record. He lent me his guitar. It was like a, I think it was like a Carlo Rebelli SG or something and like a Gibson amp. And I started, I was like, I can actually do this guitar thing. I want to learn how to do it. But I was like, there's certain chords I can play. And he's like, well, just play a bar chord. And I'm like, what's a bar chord? He says, okay, you can play an E, right? I go, yeah. He goes, move, move it up two frets and put your first finger across the entire fret. And then you change the key. You're playing any key. And the same goes for A. And I'm like, wow, like my mind just went boom. It's like, so I was like, I-, I-, I can do this. So I thanked him on my first record and I'm still, I still talk to him to this day. Occasionally I'll hear from him. Um, but so that's where I get. And, you know, so like, again, mid seventies, you know, you got your Chicago and then the Doobie brothers are on the radio and, you know, ELO and all that stuff. And then, you know, I heard Kiss and then I got into Kiss and then I went to see Kiss in 1977 at the Nassau Coliseum. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I got into Kiss. So long story short, I became a metal rock guitar player. Um, But all of that other stuff, the Beatles and all the 70s pop, that informed what Fuzzbubble became obviously in cult stars and then the the tikiaki thing is really that that is like because i I, got, I moved out to california i got into this whole tiki thing and then i discovered that music which is they call it exotica it's basically lounge music you know like jazz a mix of jazz and world percussion and you know it's vibraphone i love the sound of a vibraphone so i got into that the offshoot of that was the surf version of it which is the smaller version which is more guitar oriented and that of course comes from listening to wipe out and all the surf records of the 60s so i like arranging things so that's that's the long answer to that is just you know you get into something you listen to it and you absorb it and you do it your own way that's kind of what i do so so then all of you taking all your influences obviously we're all a sum of our influences musically Right. We, we, right. we, we, we have to attest to that. It's, you know, it's not any one thing, it's everything in one way or another that you yeah. know gives us some of our influences musically. And it comes out in our composition. It comes out in our writing, comes out in our playing. Sometimes it's yeah. aggressive. Sometimes it's light and airy. Um, but with all that, you know, you guys all started 
you know, in, in just like anybody else in, in their younger years do with, you know, more of a singular mindset, like, you know, you were more, you know, the metal guy and, and Mark, you were doing, you know, more of like, just from what I, when I remember from Po'boy Swing was more like melodic grunge with a funk kind of feel to it as well. That was in there. So that was just like, cause I'm, I'm, I still am. I'm such a huge Mike Patton fan. Mm. And, um, with that, I was just able to emulate his voice. So it kind of like, I remember people saying they were like a Faith No More, you know, and it's, it, it is what it was, you know, that's, that's why, you know, it, it, what, it, it was great for what it was, but it was, um, I don't know how original it was, you know, but, uh, but it was know, part of your influences. It was a heavy part of your inf- influences at that time. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge patent freak too. I'm still fawning over the new Mr. Bungle album. Like I, that's, that's oh, on God, regular yeah. rotation for me. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, you know, well, and also, you know, like we all have, like I'm the hugest Van Halen fan in the world too, but I don't think any of that comes out in anything I've ever done. You know what I mean? So I don't know. There's certain things where you just know when to let it uh, leak out and apply it to whatever you, you're doing. You know? Yeah, so, it it all adds up though. I mean, it might not, you might not wear it on your sleeve, but yeah, it's I there. Guess, I guess so. Yeah. You it's know. another tool for the, for the, for the battle, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and another, and as the like you said, like with with the more music you expose yourself and listen to at an early age and throughout your 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 life and everything, and the more it's just you're you're um you're just widening your vocabulary and everything to you know to kind of create things different. So it's that's why you know because you know when you when you're young when you're in your high school. I just remember there was a limited amount of things that you like. You couldn't yeah. fucking like you couldn't like the Bee Gees or. <laughs> but I was like, and 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 I got fucking flooded with that shit. Barry Manilow and Bee Gees, my dad, you know, my dad loved that shit. But you know, as you get older, it's just like, oh my god, you know what I mean? So yeah, those you know, that, are amazing, all amazing now, groups. Like yeah. you know, like I've never been a big Rush fan, but just as of late, like I got a lot of their records, and I'm just like, this is uh, it's just you know. It's, it's it's you know so it's that my kind biggest of- influence alex lifeson actually oh, ex- exactly yeah, yeah yeah rush is my uh, favorite band uh, just by far me too. Yeah. you know me too yeah. jay what about you what's your favorite band <laughs> oh it's a, it's impossible to choose I, it's funny because i'm listening to you guys and you know one thing i will say that i i don't know i kind of was like i was definitely like a nerd as a kid so i actually was really turned on to play in things like I played in like jazz band and marching band and wind ensemble and all that shit. And like, I dug it. I, I legit dug it. Um, was that stuff that so, you opted in or was that something that your music teacher said, Hey, you should do this because I see this promise in you. Both, both. It was, it was the music teachers and myself. I wanted to be a part of everything. Like I would, um, I'd play in the pit band, you know, I mean, it was young, you know, cheesy stuff, whatever. But you know, I played like in the pit, orchestra of like for the production of Greece or whatever and I'd be like the band in in front of the stage in the pit in the auditorium you know again seventh eighth ninth grade tenth grade but it did yeah. open me up to a lot of different styles of music and stuff and and how to read and you know I I, I ate that stuff up actually and it wasn't cool <laughs> you know no. to be honest with you people didn't find it cool but I, but I liked it and uh then obviously yeah, as I got into you know, late junior high and, and high school, I, you know, I wanted to be more in a band, a group, a rock group, and, you know, it changed. But I, I, I did eat all of that stuff up, and I was, and again, back to, like, my father's record collection and my uncle's record collection, I was listening to a lot of different stuff. And, like, 
almost everything was cool to me for some reason, whether it was production or the playing or, you know, in this band, it's the singer, but in this band, it's the drummer or, you know, whatever. It could have been, you know, the orchestral arrangements in a Moody Blues song. And I'm like, oh, the strings sound amazing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I really did. I, I ate everything up and, and still kind of do, you know. And and I think that, you know, I mean, I think, you know, especially with what Jim was saying with, you know, his, you know, early memories of, of music, you know, t looking at, then you look at like Tikiaki Orchestra, you could see like, there's a bridge going to there. And, you know, Mark, you know, Absolutely. with, with, you know, ha liking, you know, having, a, having an uncle that was a, a doo-wop singer and then all that 70 influence, and then you can make a bridge to O.L. Amore. And then, you know, for you, Jay, you know, I, I know that you do a lot of composing, you know, for the mm -hmm. history channel and things of that nature and taking that marching band and orchestra pit and all that yeah. orchestration, you could draw a bridge directly totally. to that. So for anybody who's listening is like, Oh yeah, you know, some such and such is uncool. Well, it might be uncool to you right this second, but it won't be later on when you can use it to something that's creative. If you're, if you're a person who's a, you know, a culinary, a culinary person, someone who cooks, uh, it's like saying, well, cinnamon isn't cool. I'm not going to use it in anything. It's like, what? You know, it's like music is, just, I, I always refer to like, especially when people ask me about Tikiaki, they're like, well, what, you know, how do you go from playing what you did to that? And I'm just like, you know, it's all chords and notes. It's, it's how you dress it up, how you prepare it. You know, um, in that band, I always say there's a lot of musical food groups. There's, you know, there's, you know, jazz, there's Latin, there's, you know, uh, bossa nova, there's swing. Um, they're all food groups. They're all different food groups. It's just like cooking, you know, you, you put your savory in or whatever your spice is. It's like, you don't say, no, I'm not going to use that spice because I don't like it. It's like, it changes the flavor of the food. So just like with everything. And we have a lot of diverse, like Mark, I did, I totally forgot that your uncle was in a doo-wop band that had records. Rip yeah, Van Winkle was a that. single, right? You know what's fucked up? I just heard stories. My dad told me a story. Um, I never knew this till recently. He's like, cause he would follow my uncle Louie. He'd go, he'd hang out with my uncle Louie and go to these shows. So they used to have shows at, um, in up in, oh fuck. I, I don't remember the place, but they would do shows where they played a fucking show with James Brown. Um, and, my fucking, and my dad went in the fucking dressing room with James Brown and had a quick conversation with him. I'm like, you gotta be, f I'm like, where the fuck, <laughs> you know, like, cause they were on the same bill. So like, cause the, the whole, they, would do like, they would do like two or three songs and then there would be another act and do a two, you know, and James Brown was obviously the headliner, but I'm like, wow. God, I'm fucking kidding me. It was something about Jack Daniels and shit. I have to get the story clear from them. <laughs> fucking crazy we need yeah, a whole well, separate is. podcast for that yeah. story alone i want that story i want the exclusive yeah, man. Yeah. yeah we all had that thing you know all of us more or less grew up i mean jim was already you know in his 30s but we were all growing up in the long island <laughs> music scene so you know coming through those days in the 80s when there was you know the good rats and zebra and all this other stuff that you would see playing at sundance and and you know all these local bands like, uh, you know, uh, my cousin's best man at his wedding, Jim, you probably know this band from being in Hitman. He was the singer of Virgin Steel. So Dave Tefay. <laughs> yeah, he was he was my cousin's best man at his wedding. So, you know, having that Long Island scene was really kind of interesting because there were some some, you know, boys that made good, you know, and girls that made good like Taylor Dane coming out of Long Island in, in the 80s and such. I mean, everybody knows about Billy Joel. But maybe you guys can shed some light for the other 49 and 7 states out there 
that may not have an idea of what that Long Island music scene was like, because there were there were lots of places to play. At one time, there were shit tons of places to play. I mean, there was Sparks, there was Februaries, which turned into Hammerheads, there, there was Reds, there was you know all these other places for bands of a certain level to play. And then there were even more venues for more signed acts to play. As the years went on, those disappeared. But what was it like when you were able to play those places, play that kind of circuit? I remember I was a little too young to the, the, the club scene in the late seventies, like when twisted with when twisted sister was playing, you know, to a thousand people a night, I was a little too young. I just started going to bars in like 1980 sneaking in, you know? Um, but back then those bands would play three, four times a week, zebra twisted sister, rat race choir, and, you know, Mark Hitt was an amazing guitar player. That guy was just like Alan Holdsworth, you know. In the, so I missed a lot of that, but I kind of caught the tail. And I, it's weird. The drinking age went up to 19 after I turned 19 and then went up to 21 after I turned 21. So I was my first gig in a bar. I was 7, 17, 1980. John Bonham's, the day John Bonham died, I had my first gig ever in a bar. Wow. So... Um, the club scene was good. And then it, you know, what was really cool was the metal scene. I saw everybody cause it was brand new and I was so into it. So I would go see everyone play. Like I saw Metallica, you know, play to 15 people at cheers, you know, um, was crazy. You know, it was Anvil and all these bands were just coming through all the time. So you kind of saw this genre happen. So for me, that was a, that was pretty exciting time to be going to be into metal and stuff. So now Jay and Mark, by the time that you guys were, were in, in actively gigging bands, you know, the music scene had changed from what Jim was experiencing with that, more of that, you know, horns up metal kind of thing. Music had changed. It was, um, more melody, more leaning towards what was coming. It was, you know, post hair band, you know, turning more to that, you know, sort of, you know, going back to the organic grunge kind of sound and things started changing. You know, like I remember distinctly, like I would see bands in the late eighties at Sundance and then like three or four years later, go see the same band at Sundance. Like, why haven't you grown from there? The atmosphere had changed, the the vibe had changed. So what was it like for you guys when you guys started gigging, you know, doing places like, you know, because at that point there were less places to play. Places started going away. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, for me, you know, and I think, Mark, you might be in, in the same boat with this, but by the time I was ready to start gigging with a band, drinking age was 21. So uh, I did get it, you know, I, I was in bands and I was playing in clubs and getting in in various ways, you know, prior to being 21. But by that point, the heyday of Long Island, which is what I, I kind of like infamously was brought up, you know, to know, again, was that Zebra, Twisted, Good Rats, Rat Race Choir. My father played in that era and made a yeah. living, honestly, playing in a band, you know, when I was I was really young. But so, I, you know, I, I graduated high school in like 89. So again, by that time, the drinking age was 21. I mean, I certainly played all the places that we could. And there was a decent circuit. But it wasn't, to Jim's point, that like, you know, gigs with a thousand people on a Friday night just because, you know what I mean? It wasn't that that big. Yeah, but we, exactly. Yeah, we played some good places. All the places you mentioned, Sundance and uh, Sparks and yeah. 
Uh, you mentioned the, the Raven. Like, I, I actually started probably the latest after all you guys. I don't think I played out. And my first band I was in was like Poor Boy Swing, which was early, which was like 90s, like 93. So we started 93, 94, maybe. Yeah. So, uh, and, and Jay was actually the first person I met with that, even before Jimmy and stuff through Generation Lost. It was probably right. uh, maybe early 90s when I was just yeah. doing of a, a goof band that we would play in like high school like at St. Jim High School and stuff I was it wasn't really a band that we would play out so like I said I had never done it I never got a chance to play Sundance you know I went there I, I got a late start on everything I was just always in my bedroom you know wanking off on guitar and just doing shit like that and going out to see bands but I got a way late start I think the actually first time I actually ever sung on stage I sang at the Center Reach High School thing and I was way after, I graduated in 87, and this had to been 91 or something. I remember singing Don't Cry by Guns N' Roses and Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> so that was wow. actually, wow. That was, that was the first time I actually sung in public. Like, and, you know, so I, I got to, I wish I would have, I was such a shy fucking intro. Like, I just never, you know, I wish I would have got an early start, but I was always there at the Battle of the Band shows and stuff in high school and watching these other bands and stuff, but I never, you know, got into anything and, you know, so well, whatever. But like I said, yeah, I met Jay first in, uh, I don't know what year that was, but it was at Reds, which you mentioned. Yeah. It was Reds. We, we would, you know, we were opening for Generation Lost and stuff. And that's where I met his dad. And, you know, so I met Jay there first. So yeah, at that point there were, you know, I remember distinctly because, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I would read about, you know, all the, all those earlier clubs that just disappeared by the time I was able to go to them, you know, God damn exactly, this yeah. fly that's like around Jesus. Yeah. Um, but you know, by the time that I was actively going to see shows yeah, February's is one hot place to go, which was, I, you know, February's and then hammerheads is what it became. Uh, yeah, right. Sundance Gasper. was yeah, Gasper. <laughs> I went to the original hammerheads. Before that was, was, yeah. That was a the big, big club. Yeah. 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 Sister. I saw a zebra there. That was a pretty cool place. Yeah. Nice. And then, and then, uh, Sundance, for those of you that didn't know, that don't know, Sundance was like the metal place to play for a very long time in Long Island run by a, play, a guy. They had every, I mean, fucking every major yeah. band that played there, which was, you know, was such a shithole, but yeah, Sundance was yep. the, the place on Long Island. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was a fire code, like issue oh. every oh, show. Yeah. Every show, they like the fire code, every show, every there were show, no fire codes, but and oh, like, yeah. you know, I remember going to see Zebra and zebra would go on at like 2 30 in the morning and the reason why they go on yeah. 2 30 in the morning frank's like well i haven't made enough money on beer yet and uh frank Ariola <laughs> was the guy who who would run sundance who kind of looked and sounded a little bit like ronald reagan except if ronald reagan did a whole lot of coke so um <laughs> so yeah i mean i saw I'm not sure he did demands there yeah <laughs> what ronald reagan or frank yeah. Ariola? <laughs> no ronald reagan <laughs> it was right, the 80s. Gonna, frank you know what we're not going to say ronald reagan was a coke head no, we're, we're I'm just, just saying, I don't know. know. I don't know. <laughs> you, yeah, neither do I. I don't. You're right. I don't know. None of us do. So we're going right. to, we're just going to, you know, leave that out there. And if somebody wants to do there and, you know, put it up on parlor, which seems to be the new place to put conspiracy <laughs> theories, you, you go well, ahead and do that. Well, uh, it's time for me to rip you off now. It's the end of the night. You had four people here. The Frank, the place was filled with 300 people. Well, only four people said your name. Uh, so yeah, that was a typical Sundance thing, but then Sundance got closed down, which ironically is now a, a, a drug and real drug rehabilitation center. So, um, 
So is that's it really? Yeah, yeah it is. There, it's like an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center. Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, well, uh, you know, the address <laughs> is ingrained into your mind. So, you <laughs> but then so that's that became, where you belong. If you went to Sundance, then that's yeah. where you belong now. So just yeah. 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 They, right. they just never left. Uh, and then there was after Sundance, Frank opened Roxy Music Hall, which oh, was yeah. nicer, a nicer shithole. This was a pig with a silk hat. So, uh, but that was nicer. It was had, a good place, actually. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was, was a good place, place to play. It was a good place to see a show. It was a better place to see a show for sure because the stage was higher and wider, and you can actually see the bands. You didn't sweat your cojones off every show while paying yeah. way too much for a beer. Um, you know, but all you guys, I mean, I know, I remember seeing one groovy coconut there. I remember seeing Pope Boy Swing play there. Uh, I never saw Generation Lost there uh, that I that I can recall. But I was working with the band. I wasn't in the band, but I was their roadie and then became their manager of a band that played with all you guys at one time or another called Borgo Pass. Right. And, oh. and Borgo Pass mm-hmm. still together. They're still together and still playing. I have a great Borgo Pass story. Who is the guitar player of Borgo Pass? Uh, well, there's two of them. There's Paul Rosato and Tom Crane. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of the wrong. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't think I know any of the guys in that band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but they're, they're, both of those guys are still in the band. You know, there's three guys that have been in the band for the past 20, Jesus, almost 30 years now. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, and everybody played. And that's what all this is leading up to. Every, all of your bands played at a place called The Raven. And The Raven was a really, 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 really interesting place. So That was a fun uh, fun place, yeah. So who wants to give the rundown on what The Raven was? Well, from what I remember, The Raven... <laughs> No, so I like the, the way Raven, you preface that. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So first kind of surf it first started probably in ninety-four, am I correct? Right around there, yeah. And so. uh it was in an industrial area. It was like in a a, a warehouse. And a, but it was a cool it was a cool thing because you like you said, at this time the clubs were dying down. Like a lot of these clubs were kind of, you know, fading out. But this was a cool, um, uh, it was like a bring your own beer type place. Yep. And, uh, and, uh, um, it was funky. It kind of had, um, uh, it had like kind of like a caffeine vibe. Remember caffeine? Is, yeah. Um, yeah. It had that type of thing, but with, um, which is cooler bands and stuff. And it was also, I guess it was affiliated, uh, with a recording studio and label. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, right, Jay? Right. Yeah. No, that's right. I can't yeah. remember the guy's name, but yeah. yeah, he started the club. It was just a smart yeah. move, actually, because he, he wanted a venue to showcase the bands that he was, you know, behind. Yeah. And uh, it was basically, like you said, kind of like a big warehouse, but also not unlike like a giant room in a typical, you know, uh, like Long Island record uh, rehearsal studio. So, you know, it had an elevated stage and a great sound system and right. it was big and it held a bunch of people and because it was an industrial area, you know, he could make a lot of noise at night and have, you know, ample parking and whatnot. So it was was a pretty cool idea, but, um, I, I don't know, Jim, did you say that? I'm not sure that you ever played there because you might've been in LA by then. Right? No, I, I have an interesting Raven story. um, All right. Go for it. As it relates to Borgo pass and Frank Cariola. Oh, cool. He's tying it all together. It yeah, all dude. comes together. And it's like it's like the rug in the Big Lebowski. It's amazing. Bring, bring yes. it home, Jim. That's, so, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one groovy coconut played at the Roxy. 
like four other bands or whatever. We played our gig. We were done. We were leaving. And Borgo Pass moved into our dressing room because they were playing later. And unbeknownst to me, the dressing room got trashed. Frank called me up, started fucking screaming at me, Cariola. And I said, man, we were gone. I said, the last people I saw in there were Borgo Pass. They came in after us. That's all I know. I don't know if they did it or not. He's like, okay. So apparently he yelled at them and didn't let them play his club anymore and all this stuff. So I'm about a week away from moving to Los Angeles. I go to the Raven and the guys from Borgo Pass are like, hey man, come here. They took me around the side of the building and they started calling me a fucking rat and threatening to kill me. They're like, yeah, you told Frank Cariola that we trashed. I said, dude, I'm telling you, I didn't tell them that you did anything. I'm just telling, I just told them that you were in the dress room. I, these guys were probably going to freaking kick my ass. It was literally like probably a, less than a week before I did, drove out. Did they beat you up? They didn't, but I, I they, you, you know, know what? Like, they, they gave, they gave you a Borgo pass. Ah, actually, you know, you know what it is, Jay. It's, it, oh wait, I'm sorry. Hang on. There we go. Uh, Mike, can you imagine him at the time? Did you know about this? I cannot confirm or deny I was there that night. Um, oh. Did you trash the? Tell me the truth. I did not me. do that. Did you trash the dressing no, room? I was did this not. you? And actually, don't I can lie say, to me. I can say that I did not do it, and I can say that it wasn't the band who did it. But I cannot confirm nor deny that they were associates of the band that may or may not have had something to do with that at one time or another, possibly that exact evening. Now. The party in that, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I can say though is that I know that the guys wouldn't have beat you up because they they don't they don't beat up senior citizens. It's not in their nature. Oh. <laughs> I'm what, sorry. Just wait, just wait. Well, you're gonna walk around the the warehouse down in San Diego one day, and there's gonna be f three silhouettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, come, hey, come here. <laughs> I got friends come in here. San Diego, you know. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play a song. All right, and we're going to talk about this when we come back. And this is the newest song from Cult Stars from Mars. Well, not the newest, but one of the newest, featuring a certain Mike Portnoy on drums. And yeah, this one an is called... Actually, an exact Mike Portnoy. An exact Mike Portnoy on drums. And this is called Dragonfly Part 2. Keep it right here. 102.3 WBAB.
can fly right into the sun And that heart that I've been craving for And that was the first single from Cult Stars from Mars. That song is called Dragonfly Part 2, picking up right where Fuzzbubble left off. And that was also featuring Mike Portnoy on drums. So that's going to bring an end to our first of our two parts of this particular podcast. This was Episode 5, Part 1. Part 2 is up next. But in the meantime, before you get there, we actually have a special bonus episode of This Song Sucks For You, featuring myself and Mike Tobin. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's that time, your favorite and mine, time for the segment called This Song Sucks! And once again, we are joined by Mike Tobin, and uh, Mike and I discussed this beforehand. Now, this one I don't agree with you on, okay? So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna battle here. Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of Cheap Trick. You're a big fan Same of Cheap here. Trick. Yep. Huge fan. Huge Love fans them. of Cheap Trick. Love them to death. Um, you know, uh, seen Cheap Trick a number of times live. You've got the guitar picks at home. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's... It's a great band with a great history with one of the best vocalists in rock music ever. I mean, Robin Zander, amazing vocally. Lap of Luxury comes out after all these great rock records. And it was a very much, a, I don't want to say a departure because T-Trick was power pop. They were very oh, yeah. much power pop. Mm-hmm. But this was very polished and clean as an album. It's very shiny yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, they... On this album, you know, it starts off with a song called Let Go, which is actually one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs ever. It's a great, straightforward pop song, power pop song. But again, very polished. Um, I think Don't Be Cruel, they do a cover Don't Be Cruel on the album as well, which obviously, well, Elvis. But The Flame was their breakout hit on that album. When I say breakout hit, I don't mean that they hadn't had hits before, but just from that particular album, that was the -the over-the-top smash hit. And Mike Tobin says this song sucks. I disagree vehemently, but let's hear his side of things. <sighs> I'm probably guilty. No, I'm not probably. I, I'm definitely guilty of wanting my favorite artists to just sound the same all the time. <laughs> I feel like Cheap Trick did that for a lot of albums, right? Yeah. I mean, they got to what was it? It was a next was it next position, please. That's the one that's produced by George Martin. I mean, obviously, Dream Police has a lot of production value to it and stuff like that. But next position, please, was produced by Todd Rundgren. That's right. Next position. I always get the album cut. Next position, please, was produced by Todd Rundgren. All shook up is produced by George Martin. There you go. And that was where, in my mind, you know, they they really, I don't know, I I, I liked some of that record. I think that has that has Baby Loves to Rock on it, doesn't it? And I love that song. But I, I just liked Cheap Trick to just be like bare bones, rock and roll, without all the fluff. 
but the flame is is like wait did we decide what year the flame came out what I year think was it was 88 and uh i remember I, I i saw cheap trick open up for robert plant as they were touring for that album um at madison square garden of all people uh, all people all places so that was that was kind of really cool to see like you know one of my favorite bands at one of the most hallowed venues on on the planet so with that said, though, I mean, The Flame is to me, it, yeah, it's sort of prototypical in its ballad-esque sense. You know, doing our research, we realized that Cheap Trick didn't actually write the song, which is not surprising in a lot of ways, especially when you hear, you know, when you li- listen to it, it's not like a prototypical Cheap Trick song. Yeah. It's a prototypical ballad, but Cheap Trick didn't really do ballads in a prototypical fashion. This definitely has polish to it. It's 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 a well-done pop song. And I like it because it's not, it's cheap tricks doing a prototypical pop song. That's why I do like it. But you have other reasons for not liking it. I just, I don't like ballads a lot. <laughs> so okay. there's that. So, all right. So that eliminates it out of there. And now anyway. you could probably, someone will probably name 10 ballads and they'll be like, I'll be like, oh yeah, I love all those songs. <laughs> but um, I don't really like ballads. That's not what I want from Cheap Trick. I think that song got a lot of airplay from what I remember. And in the late 80s, it's, you know, all you, had to, all you had was the radio, right? So, and in the Midwest, there wasn't a lot of alternative radio. So if you were in your car and if you forgot to bring cassettes to play in your car, then you might have to listen to the radio and you might <laughs> have to hear Cheap Trick's The Flame. Ugh. It's the synth pads and all that stuff. And and here's what it is. Here's what it is, Mike. I think of it as like playing in a dentist's office, like while you're waiting. <laughs> or lightly, lightly being played on, on, on someone's desk, <laughs> like at, at work. Like it's, it's just, it's a, it's safe. It's ambient. It's safe. <laughs> It's background music. It is. It's just, it's just safe. It's, it's, it's like, I feel like I'm going to say something and just dig a huge hole, but do it. Go for it. No, it just, it just sounds like, like music for sad, forlorn housewives or something. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Wistful as they look. Yeah, and you know, I mean, that's an important demographic, and you gotta you gotta write music for for everybody. But yeah, I just I just couldn't get down with it, and and I think maybe it's an, another one of those things where I just I heard it so many times that it was like, oh my gosh, I will agree I to that. Get away from yeah, it. Yeah, that was spun you know? like two hundred times a day on pop stations Ugh. in New York. I mean, it, it just it was it was a lot. It was almost like, you know they almost changed the name of the station to the flame because they played it so much. I agree with you on that one. It was beaten to death, but there was a reason for it. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was a great pop song. It was a great pop ballad. It just had a lot of build and emotion in it. And I really think that it used Robin Zander's voice in a great way. It wasn't when he sang and when he shouted, it, it meant something you felt it. So for me, it was, you know, the emotion behind it. You kind of like related to where he was coming from with it. The vocal harmonies in the chorus, I thought that was cool, too, because it brought it to an emotional build, you know? Yeah, but, but all those synth pad sounds. I, yeah. Fine. Ugh. So we'll just, if anybody Ugh. out there wants to do a cover, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Do a cover of The Flame 
minus all the synth pads, make the synth pads guitars, and let's see if Mike Tobin likes it. Yeah. That's a challenge. <laughs> we'll throw down with that. Fine. So we will say that we are split on this one. If yeah. this was a Siskel and Ebert, I would give the thumbs up. He would give the thumbs down, yeah. uh, way down in his in his opinion. Yeah, I just hate it. So, well, that'll, that'll uh, for now, conclude this particular... Uh, let's see if I can do this. It'll conclude this particular session of... This, 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 this song sucks. <laughs> I had to find the cheesiest delay for that. And it's so good. Indeed, it's a whole lot of fun doing that, and I don't care who you are. I mean, it's my podcast, so there's that. Anyway, that's the end of Episode 5, Part 1 of Music Cover to Covered, featuring cult stars from Mars, formerly known as Fuzzbubble. We talked about how they all got started in music, and we also played you their first single called Dragonfly Part 2. And actually, we're going to start off Part 2 of the podcast with Dragonfly Part 2, but make sure you check it out, because after that, we're going to talk about what else is happening with cult stars from Mars, and we're going to talk about the 20th anniversary of the Fuzzbubble debut album. Make sure you check it out.